I want you to open the book of Psalms again, Psalms 36 and verse 3, our text. We have been talking for the last couple of weeks about this verse, verse 3, titled, The Danger of Leaving Off. Whatever leaving off means, there obviously is a danger to it because it says in verse 3, they have left off to be wise and to do good. The word left off implies that they were once somewhere that now they are no longer there. And things that they once did that were good and wise, they're not doing now. And something happened. Who knows what happened? Maybe it was the effect of time. Maybe they just lost interest. Maybe they just got bogged down into what I grew up in, just religion. It wasn't a big factor in your life. You want to go to church, you could. If you didn't want to go, you didn't have to. But it just wasn't a thing that captured your attention. It drove your life. It was just something you did on Sunday. Maybe it didn't start that way. It might have started out with a lot of exuberance. You know, you came to the Lord, and I'm ready to go, and I'm going to heaven, and praise the Lord. And you're surrounded by people that love you and care about you, and they tend to, you know, it's exuberance, oh boy, but it's just somewhere down the road, down as time takes its toll or the effects of the world or your friends or something begins to settle on you, yet that zeal and exuberance seems to wane. And it's hard to worship. It's hard to be, well, may I say emotional. It's hard to show emotion unless you're at a ball game. You remember when you were, but, well, I, I don't know. So we're talking about things that cause us to leave off. Or as one translation said, he has ceased to do good. Or he has ceased to be wise and to do good. Or another translation said, he ceased to act wise and do good. Why? Our question is, why would you cease to do good why would you leave off being wise if you ever really understood it and what we're doing here and what this is all about? Why would you leave it off? You'll see the word leave off is a word which means to abandon or to forsake. To me, it's just like a person who acts like he has no deep interest. He cares. You know, I mean, you're, you're here because of some reason, but nothing that's going to really control your life. So Why? Now, we've looked at several things. All of these are common things. All of these are ordinary things. And I think everybody in this room understands each particular point. So far, we have said a lot of people leave off from being wise because of a defective start. They had a problem in their life. They were going downhill fast. Maybe it was marriage. Maybe it was money. Maybe it was a loss of something. Maybe it was in... Uh, something that just troubled them and they or maybe they were doing drugs or drinking too much or hanging out with a crowd and had a narrow escape from something and they said man i gotta do something about my life so they come to the lord and again they're surrounded by people that are loving and caring and they want you in their party in their church in their in their group and and they care about you and you learn how to sing and you learn how to how to do what that church does but it seems like down the road, because nothing really happened at the beginning, things just sort of settle down and settle out. Next thing you know, you're looking back instead of forward because you really weren't born again. 
If a person is truly born again, born again, the Bible says you're a new person, a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And there has to be evidence of that in our life. Otherwise, that's just literature and it's not a reality. But all things become new. But a lot of people were, didn't have that. They just joined church. They, they weren't troubled by sin. Apparently, it wasn't identified as sin is your problem. Sin is the reason that you're in this hopeless despair. Sin is what's causing you to go downhill and everything working backwards for you. It's sin. And look what sin has done to you. Most people don't grieve over that. They grieve over the effects of sin in their life, and they want all of that to change. So they come to the Lord, but they didn't come to him on his terms. Another reason that people leave off to be wise is because of a neglect of personal worship and corporate worship. Everybody that's going to walk with the Lord must come to the place that you spend time with the Lord, hopefully every day, a consistent time. You read. If you do nothing more than just read the Bible, I can promise you if you'll stay with it every day, if you'll read it, things will begin to jump off the page at you, and in that way God will speak to you. You'll be encouraged. You'll be given something to be convicted of. God will show you something. It's when you spend time with the Lord. It's called, you know, the Bible talks about Psalm 91, that secret place of the Most High. Not a lot of people there. It's you and God. It's one-on-one. God called you because he knew you. He wants you to come in fellowship with him so he can remake you the way he wants you to be. And he shows you things that you may not see while you're here. But he wants us to be together as a church. We only meet twice a week. And when we come together like this in corporate or gathered fellowship, God speaks to us. The Spirit of God often moves in a, in a special way in a meeting like this. You may not sense it yourself, but somebody will, because while you were here, God really did something in your heart, really moved on you. That wouldn't have happened if you'd sat at home and listened to a tape, but it's while you were here. Plus, you get to talk to people and know who people are. You learn who to pray for, who cares about you, what needs you can help meet. All of these things happen because we come together. And then this is how we prove ourselves to be worthy of ministry. We show up. We are part of what we're doing. We stay out of trouble. We are practicing what the Bible teaches. And in that way, we prove ourselves. We find the approval of the congregation. They can trust us if they send us on a missionary trip. You're not some stranger that walked in. Your life is known. And like Peter wrote once, said, you know, there were some men who went out from us, but they weren't of us. They weren't really a part of us. They attended, they, were, they showed up, but they weren't really a part. So you prove yourself that way. But a lot of people neglect that. They forbid the assembling of themselves together, as the Bible says, and they begin to leave off being wise, and they begin to do things that they shouldn't do. And then you begin that way to lose interest And that's when other things come back into your life and you go back to where you were. Still religious, having church added to that, but basically as you were. And another reason that people leave off to be wise and forsake the Lord is because of the pursuit of worldly success and treasures. Nothing wrong with 
pursuits of treasures as long as you do it as God gives it on God's terms. Jesus said, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his right ways, all these other things that the world seeks will be given to you. And he said in Deuteronomy 28, if you will give your heart and mind and thoughts and your energy to the Lord, all these blessings shall come upon you and they will overtake you. And then he gives you 15 verses describing what you can expect the Lord to do. Not that Christians do expect that to ever happen. Because the devil said, well, you're not worthy of that. You're not good enough. You're not spiritual enough. You're not religious enough. So they resign themselves from ever expecting that to happen. But God said, if you will dedicate your heart, your life to him and to his word and his way, all these blessings shall come. And sometimes people want those blessings on their way, not God's way. So they begin to leave off God. They begin to cut corners. They do things that God wouldn't want you to do. I still don't think debt is the way Christians ought to go. You could debate that in a couple of areas, but I would much rather myself be out of debt than in debt. I don't want to owe a man anything. But with debt, you can gain a lot of things in this world. Only thing about that is that if times change and times get hard, all those debts come back and trouble you. And then they affect your mind, they affect your attitude, and shouldn't have had it happen like that, but it does happen like that. And you've given heed to what the Bible said about it and trusted God and let him bring it into your life, you wouldn't have had those mental problems or that anguish or that frustration. But that was your choice, not his. But one of the things he said in, the, in Matthew 13, the chapter that has to do with the sower and the seed, about worldly treasures and those that seek them, he said in Matthew 13, verse 22, he said, Here's a man who hears the word, the Bible said, and the care of this world, the anxiousness, the anxiety, the worry, the stress of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches. Boy, money promises you so much and delivers so little. Some of the people that have the most money are the most miserable. They're not happy. They're suspicious. They don't even like themselves. That's why they do drugs, to try to escape who you are and be something else so you can live with it. But you see, money is a false promise. Now, you can use it as a Christian, and God will give it to you, and you can advance yourself and others and his kingdom with it. You can make a lot of people happy and bring thanksgivings to God, Paul wrote about, with money. But when your whole life is about pursuing it and having and getting and being, I'm going to college and I'm going to get this and then I'm going to be this and I'm going to marry that and then I'm going to have perfect children and I'm going to ride off in the sunset and be happily married the rest of my life, have everything I want, a yacht, a camper, two cars, and a trail bike, a Harley Davidson maybe. You can have all of that, folks, and I promise you without Christ, like he said in Matthew 16, he said, you know, if you gain the whole world, if you get it, what you finally wanted, and Christ isn't in all of that, if you gain the world and you lose your soul, you've lost everything. Right. Jesus said life does not consist in the abundance of toys. Amen. At the end of, the, of life, it's not who has the most toys goes to heaven. To be rich in faith 
is to be more than the richest man in the world. When I was growing up, a millionaire was whoa, but today billionaires are taking over. Billionaires. I saw one the other day, a paper worth $36 billion. I wondered, what would you do with that much money? You couldn't spend it all. What are you going to do with it? Well, the effect that money has on you then is to get more. Rockefeller, how much more money do you have to have to have enough? He said, just a little more. And they live for it. They pursue it. They don't need it, but it's, it drives people. And when money drives you, you cannot be driven by God and serve God. But people, they find success. They're just hardworking people, and, and they get it. And eventually, you see, they begin to lose interest. It's something God sort of is no longer factors in their life. And they leave off to do good. And we finished last week here. Uh, fourth reason is that when you leave off to do wise, one of the reasons is because of persecution and adversity. A lot of people think that coming to Jesus is coming to a religious atmosphere that changes your life. It's full of warmth. It's full of warm, cozy, fuzzy feelings and everything is all about love and all about goodness and God and everything is just going to work right. And then you read things like all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution and people's worldly trained lives say, oh, I didn't sign up for persecution. And in this world, Jesus said in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. Oh, no, no, I didn't come here for that. Oh, I came here to walk on the uh, water and maybe turn a little water into wine. And, uh, you know, I, I came here for that. I didn't come here for that trouble stuff. Turn to Hebrews 12. But the fact of the matter is, all the things that the Lord teaches you that he wants you to do, be doers of the word, all the things he wants you to do, you don't even know if you want to do it until you're tempted not to do it. And then we'll find out what's in your heart. It's called tests or trials, or in some cases, temptations. Situations in life that challenge your convictions, challenge your Christian beliefs, Things that arise in your life or come at you that are just the opposite of what you believe. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then you begin to ask yourself, how can you trust God in a time like this? And it makes sense because the world is full of logic and reason. And so they begin to reason with themselves. Well, I, I don't know how this could be. God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't do that. And so without even knowing God, they assume that God meant this or is like they reasoned him out to be. And so they make a decision that's not after God at all. It's to escape the trouble and the adversity and the temptations that come along in their life. You see, he said in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1, he said, now consider him. Consider Jesus. That's who we're talking about. Consider him, and then he ends by saying, lest you what? At the end of that verse. Lest you be what in your mind? Wearied and faint. Faint is, the, is like losing your grip. It's what we're talking about this morning, that thing that causes you to ease up 
and rethink your Christianity. Maybe you should draw back a while and regroup here and let's start all over. And so you begin to let go. Now your heart said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't let go. Don't look back. Don't look back. Well, I, I know that it says that, but I'm, I know God understands that God's bigger than my theology. And so what I'm going to do, and so you start reasoning within yourself how you think it ought to be. It seems good to you, and so you do it. But you miss it. Now, he said now, Concerning the troubles and the trials and the difficulties in life that you're going to face and the adversity that's promised you and the tribulations and so forth, seeing that historically those before us whose lives we read about, the great cloud of witnesses, you know, we have their testimony that's recorded in the Bible for us to read what this one did, that one did, this one did, and that one did, and how they survived. And, boy, they all went through some hard time. I mean, whoa. Would you have done that, Daniel and Lion's Den, and three kids or four kids in a furnace? Three plus one more? I mean, what would you have done? What if they threatened to kill you if you didn't tell where David was and they killed all those priests? I mean, what would you have done? Would you have gone that far? If you were a prophet, would you have gone to the mightiest king in all the land and told him that he was wrong? You know you're going to suffer for this. But there were those that did it. Well, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He said, we have all these great cloud of witnesses. Lay aside every weight and sin that does so either beset us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus. Verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself lest you, in your time of life, in your opportunity, when you get to hit center stage in your own life, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. So before you give up, before you change course, before you reason within yourself that this is too much, too hard, too far, too slow, too young, too old, too something, and that maybe you're a victim, before you do all of that, look at Jesus. What did he go through for us to be here today? At what point in all of his walk did he give up, back off, and change course? At what moment did he sit down on the, one of those hillsides with his disciples and say, boys, y'all need to pray for me. I don't know what to do anymore. He never was like that. Knowing before he went into cities and before he did what he did that the whole nation was going to reject him. They were all going to hate him. Even his own disciples would forsake him, and he did it anyway. He never quit. He never gave up. They beat him almost mercilessly. Plucked his beard out, yanked hair. How would that hurt, those of you that have hair on your face? How would it feel if somebody grabbed a handful and just yanked it, right, roots and all, right out of your face? Or somebody just haul off and hit you? And you couldn't see who did it and say, hey, prophet, who did that? Or put a crown of thorns on your head and then gave you a reed mocking kingship. Then took that rod and hit that crown of thorns and drive those big, long thorns down in your scalp. There's a lot of nerve endings in your head and all of that. And then beat his back 39 times. 
I mean, that was just beat open. And he bled from the garden all through the city, bled before Pilate, he bled at the cross. He was beaten and thrown down and spit on, and the very people he came to save were making fun of him. Isaiah 53, he said he was somebody, but he's just getting what he deserves. And he did it knowing this was going to happen. So before you give up on the little thing you're going through, you need to go back to the garden, start there. He did. In his resistance against sin, the Bible said he shed his blood in resistance. We read of it, it fell like mingled with sweat, drops of blood fell to the ground. Man, you talk about somebody that's really into it. I mean, really, and the Bible used the word agonizing in the garden. That's where it starts. But the decision made there was such that when he got up, his disciples, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, never looked back. No more questions. It was all done. He made his decision. So me and you can be in this room today with a message of hope. He did that for us. Now, what do we get if we say we're following him and we start whining about it's too hard and I can't and I don't know if I can do this and it's just too much? Knowing that he's already said nothing you're going to go through is bigger than you are. With every situation you're going to find yourself in, every temptation, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond that which you're able. So quit all of that chin music about I can't do it. Because you can do it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You are strengthened to complete your course, to finish your course, and be seated with him in heavenly places, and so you can reign and rule with Christ on this earth when he comes back. Amen to that. So, adversity, difficult. Look at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Why would the Lord rebuke me? I love him. I surrender all. I came to him because I want to do what he wants. And why would he chastise me? What have I done? How many of you know that when you came to the Lord, you were full of dirt? Now, you got a new heart. You were cleansed here. But how many of you know that your mind that has to be renewed was a nasty thing? All the patterns of thought that got me in sinful behavior. All my actions and reactions. My snotty attitude and critical attitude. All that stuff that I had when God saved me. All of that has to be dealt with, doesn't it? So he teaches, he starts by teaching, this is the way walking in it. This is what the Bible says, do this, do this, do this. It just happens that at that moment you're anointed to hear that. You got it. Amen, 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 amen. Then you go through life, and in a couple of days, all of a sudden, something comes up, and you're tempted to just, at that point, the conviction comes up and says, don't do that. Say, oh, Lord, I don't know if I can hold back. Yes, you can. You got no other choice. Anything else is wrong. He that knoweth to do good. And do it that not, now to him it becomes sin. 
because he knows better. Or you're going to have to trust the Lord and walk something out, or you're going to have to trust God with money or with this or that, or you're going to, and, and you say, oh, but Lord, and he said, wait a minute, now I promised that I would never leave you nor forsake you. You're not alone. You're being tested. You're given an opportunity in this life to prove that what I have said that you've amened, that you really believe it. Now, here's an opportunity. You don't even know what you believe until you have an opportunity not to believe it or to start reckoning and reasoning and, oh, I don't know about that. No, sir. Do you know what it says, what the Bible says? Do you know what the situation requires? Now, you got an opportunity to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. These are trials. They're necessary in our lives. We need them. And every son that God receives, everybody that he brings to himself. Remember, you didn't choose him. He chose you, and everybody he brings to himself is in need of cleansing. Every one of them needs to be changed, even you. Even you folks need to be changed. Sometimes, and I'm just saying this because I'm your brother, sometimes you get lethargic. What's that mean? Well, dull, indifferent. It came to that. It wasn't like that, but it's come to that. And God speaks. He said, look at you. You know better than to be like that, but you are like that because that's a choice you made. And you can also make a choice to say, get up, Hamilton. Let's go. Get those hands up. Open that mouth and start. Put a smile on that face. You're a child of God. I know it. He begins to deal with us. You've got an opportunity to demonstrate with your life what you really are willing to do, either to respond to God and be what he said. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I could give him a sacrifice of praise, or I can sit back and join the crowd and just say, well, I used to do that. Bad. You're leaving off to do good now. You've left off. That's not a good thing. For what God teaches us, he wants us to live. Isn't that right? We get overwhelmed sometimes by adversity and stuff and difficulty. We get persecuted. We take stands. We walk out our faith, and people think, ooh. Why does he do this? Why the chastisement? Not only to change us, but to change us to what? Verse 10. To change us to what? And he very clearly says, for they verily, talking about our earthly fathers, chastened us after their own pleasures, but God for our profit. That. You see the word that? For this reason. That we, by chastisement, might be partakers of his holiness. That implies a change from the way you were, not really knowing what that is, unto somebody that is becoming like what that is. Holiness begins to mean something to you because it means you're different. You don't talk like other people. You don't go where other people go. You don't watch, dress, and do what other people do that have no regard for God because you are being made in, in the way that God wants you to be made. You become holy. I don't mean you're holy because you're sinless, perfectly Incapable of sin. That's not what he says. You're becoming holy. You're becoming godlike in a lot of things that you're doing. Things that God wouldn't do, you won't do. 
things that God wouldn't say you won't say. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him. We sing it all the time. Well, that's what holiness is. That's the purpose of chastisement. Now, another reason, go back to Hebrews 12 of the first verse again. Another reason that some people leave off to do good and don't do well is because of some besetting sin. Some besetting sin. Notice he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, draws us back, draws us down. Is it possible that there is some sin in our lives, some weakness in our life, maybe a moral weakness, maybe a character weakness that we all had when we came to the Lord, that if it's not dealt with, it'll keep dragging us down? Maybe it's an old habit. Maybe it was porn. Maybe the attraction of something like that, even though you're a Christian, you find it very difficult to resist. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe you were a bingo babe. I mean, you were the hottest thing in the bingo room with the B29 or B6, whatever they are. I used to go with my mother those things all the time. It was the dullest place in the world. Is a bingo game. And it gets in their system. I mean, the whole life you be robbed around the next night you go. And you need to buy special little plastic things to put on your card. It used to give you corn. You lay a little piece of corn on whatever number they called. And then they get them fancy little things and they get fancy this and fancy that and fancy purses. My mom had all that stuff. And we showed up and she'd buy a whole table full of cards and give me one. And I'd play my little card. I found with her it was hard to break away from that. It seemed like everybody has some kind of a problem. Maybe it's a moral problem. Maybe it's just lying. You can't stop lying. I've known people that have a hard time telling the truth. I mean, they get close to the truth, but they add deception to it. It's a spirit. And it's a sin. Because it's not yielded to God and put to the cross or put to death. And it controls people. It's, I don't know all about everybody in here. But I would imagine each one of you have a unique weakness. Something that you're allowing to function and happen in your life is keeping you probably holding you back this morning or today. Something that pertains to you, period. Something that you've had. Nobody else may have it, but you have it. But its function in your life amounts to sin that holds you back, a besetting sin. Now, God will show you what it is. If you listen and your heart's right, he'll show you what it is. You'll be convicted by it. But being convicted doesn't mean you'll deal with it. But if you are convicted and you want to walk with the Lord, then you have to deal with it. But some people don't. I think there's people who were such awful people before they got saved that when they came to the Lord, they just remember, you know, you get in a service and you're worshiping God and in the middle of the worship, the devil throws a, a, an old sin in your life. I remember what you did that time. Remember what you said there. Remember when you were in college, you did this or that. I've been through this a lot in my life and all the things you did that were just wrong. It was just wrong. 
And then the devil says, you know what? Your life is so tainted with so much inward darkness that you can try this Christian thing all you want to. You can go to church as much as you want to, but you'll never really be any different than you are. You'll never really change. You're shackled with this problem, and you're just the way you are. I mean, it's good to talk about it and sing about it and pray about it, but it'll never go away. It's just a sin. It's probably going to keep you out of heaven. But, you know, take your chances. Keep going to church. Maybe you'll make it. That's the way the devil talks. Let me tell you something, folks. Sin is common to everybody in this room. There's nobody in this room that has not sinned. Nobody. We have all demonstrated to God a common weakness that we yield to something that we should not yield to, and thus we have all sinned. Our sin cut us off from God. It made us sinners. It only took one sin. And the law, even the Ten Commandments, as good as all of that is and as cherished as it is by the religious community, there was no provision in there to remove sin. The Ten Commandments tells us ten times what is sin. It doesn't tell you how to get rid of it. It's good to know because that's who God is and that's who God wants us to be and the kind of life he wants us to live. And nobody could and nobody can because of sin. And there's no provision to get rid of it in the law. Finally, people saw that. Well, what are we going to do? I mean, we keep falling to the... And so a Savior came. You know the rest of the story. Jesus came and fulfilled by his perfect life all the demands of the law. And therefore God accepted him as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, for the sins of fallen man. That's why we're here today. And he proved that he was all of that when he raised him from the dead. That was living proof. The greatest event ever so far on this earth, ever, was the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. It made it possible for God to forgive people like you and me. And even though we grew up in a world which all that was out there, we chose to reject God, turn away from God, and we lived in filth and ugliness and nastiness. And if, even if we didn't run around and hang around in bars and bad places, we had an attitude that was formed by movies and magazines and gossip Sin is sin, folks. Whatever form it comes in, we were all sinners. Now, here's what the Bible said. Genesis 4, 7, remember that? If you do not well, it says, sin lieth at the door. Obviously, meaning we should do well. And the one thing that will keep us from doing well is sin. Sin is when you give in to something you know is wrong. Now, there's some things you don't know, and so there's an innocence there, but, I mean, you're wrong is still wrong. But sin lieth at the door, and the Bible says that its desire or his desire, sin, a personality, his desire is for you. Something abstract can have a desire. It has to be a, a being of some sort to have desire. And the Bible said, sin has a desire for you. 
the one who provokes us to sin is the devil. And that verse 7 ends in Genesis 4 by saying this, but you, you and I, should rule over him. We have no excuse for being sinners. Not anymore. Not if you've been saved. You can't say anymore, well, nobody's perfect. I mean, after all, I, I mean, nobody can do everything. You can't live everything the Bible says. No, you can't say that anymore. Because the Bible said you should rule over sin. The very thing that makes you fall, that causes you to give up, makes you feel lonely and in despair or losing interest, that is sin. Behind that inspiration is sin. And the Bible said you should rule it. That's like he said in Romans chapter 6. He said sin shall not have dominion over you. You mean we can have dominion over sin? Yes. It is not required in this life to prove that you're fallible and that you're fragile and that you're just, I'm just an old sinner. (laughs) That's not necessary. What you need to prove is that, what, what do you tell the woman that sinned? Go and what? Sin no more. Oh, this theology today says, well, that's not possible. Who said that? Who said it's not possible? Did Jesus lie? Did Jesus deceive that woman? We're warned, sin lies at the door and its desires for you. But you, he said, you must rule over it. Now, if you don't rule over it, if you tolerate it, if you allow those things to come back in your life, if you don't yield to your convictions and and let God strengthen you, then you'll just live in a weak and somewhat disinterested life the rest of your life in any church you're a part of. And religion will mean nothing to you except some hopeful end that maybe I'll make it, but I have no concrete assurance that I will. What an awful way to live. But where I think the church is full of that, they just don't know. They just don't know. The modern King James Version, I don't promote these things, but this is the way it translates Genesis 4-7. He said, and if you do not well, sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you and you shall rule over it. Sin crouches at the door. Like something that knows it's going to get its chance to spring into action and it's waiting for you to just give in because most everybody does. They just give in. So he said, you have to deal with it. Now go back to Hebrews 12 because maybe also there's something more than just some unique sin common to each one of us. Maybe it is a particular sin that we all have trouble with. You know, the article, the, in that sentence, the sin, singles out perhaps a particular common sin. Not a unique sin to you or me, but something common to all of us. There is one particular sin that seems to slay everybody. And the one that Christians have the most trouble with. Whoa, what is that? Well... He said, verse 2, lay aside the weight and the sin was dust so easy beset us and run with what? Run with what? A word means endurance. Endure what? All the attacks and all the opposition. You got to run. Running is a given. And so is endurance if you want to make it to the end. Verse 3. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross. Do you have a cross? Has a cross been given to us? It sure has. In fact, Jesus said, without it, you cannot be a disciple. Whoa. Verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. Verse 7, if you endure chastening. The implication in these verses is that a lot of people just won't stay put. They won't stay with it because, wow, that's kind of tough. And you get the last verses of Hebrew 10 where it says, the just, those that are made right with God, will live by faith. He that comes to God must believe that he is, that he's listening, he's watching, that he's taking notes, and he's keeping track of us. you got to believe that. You can't see him, you can't feel him, you can't touch him. Your senses don't relate to him, but your faith does. But if you walk by faith and somewhere or another along the line, the tempter comes and begins to deal with you and want you to draw back, you got a warning in Hebrews 10, verse 38 and 39. It said, but if any man draw back, what does God say? What does he say? My soul, God says, my soul shall have. Well, if he has no pleasure in him, then how would he ever say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? He couldn't. And he wouldn't. Another thing that goes right along with that. What fifth reason? Is false teaching. False teaching. People are deceived. Now, I do believe in eternal security. That part of me is Calvinist. I do believe. I do believe that once a man has fully been called out of darkness by the Lord, he is forever called out of darkness. Now, he will struggle in this life, and he doesn't know what God knows. He has to believe that he is. That's why he makes his calling and election sure. There are some who believe that once you're called out, you know, there, there is absolutely no requirement to live in any special way. Because if you had to live in any special way, then you were adding works to your salvation. This has been debated for hundreds of years. Years ago, I heard a man say, he was a former Baptist theologian, and I heard him say, he said, you're not saved by works, but you're not saved without them either because works show your faith. That makes a lot of sense. You know, if the devil can keep me subdued and... How about lethargic? We'll use that again. Keep me subdued and lethargic and indifferent and just make Christianity a, a habit. You know, we're going to go do our thing Sunday morning. We go through the routine and give our dollar and sing our song and shake our hands and go home. If he can keep me that way, then I really don't care much about what the Bible says. I've fallen into a system that's corrupting me and eventually is going to slay me. A system that doesn't teach me that I have to walk by faith. If you're just, the Bible said you will walk by faith. It's not easy. Not many want to. Many have left off. I think it still says in the Bible, some in the last days shall what? Depart from the faith. Why? Because of false teaching. They will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. That's in a church context. 
How can this be? Do you believe that every minister that stands behind a pulpit, whether here or anywhere else, do you think we're all infallible? That whatever we say is right when we're not saying the same things? How do you know what's right and wrong? You got to get it right. We said that the other night. You got a Bible, check it for yourself. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm saying. Check it out. If it's in the Bible, believe it because God said it. That's what we do. Hopefully we can assemble somewhere that what we hear won't drive us away from God, but will force us into God. But the kingdom of God will be taken by force. You'll have to hold on. You'll have to fight the good fight of faith. It's not easy. It's easy to withdraw. The easiest thing in life. The easiest thing in life is to quit. Give up. Faint. Draw back. Lose heart. Leave off. Stop doing it. Anybody can do that. Anybody. But only Christians can hold fast. And most of them are being talked out of their holding fast from the pulpits of America. And I know when people, you say these things, they think, oh, now here we go again. Well, we might, here we go again for as long as we're breathing. If there is a form of religion that denies the sacred things that God says in his word, it's false doctrine. And there is a way that seems right unto men, but it's a way of death if it's not according to the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah. In the middle of your Bible to the right. Jeremiah. Look in chapter 23. Jeremiah 23 and verse 13. I have seen folly in the prophets of the United uh, excuse me, of Samaria. They prophesied in churches by, oh, excuse me, I get that wrong. Uh, they prophesied in Baal. What did they do? They came along and they prophesied. Maybe they preached. Maybe they expounded how they see it. This is what I think after all my years of study and learning and, and effort and seeking after God. Folks, this is the conclusion that I have come to. And maybe they can say that with such elegance that it, how could you not believe it? Dear old brother, kind soul, exalted, educated, eloquent, Whatever, so, and we look at people and tend to think that people are right more than the words right. But these prophets, not everybody was a prophet, but the prophets were kind of unique and special people. When they spoke, everybody listened. But what they said, what they said, what they told people that people embraced, said, cause my people to err. Turn aside. They turned away. They listened to what they said, and they turned away. Verse 16, he said, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the preachers that preach. In, excuse me, I get, I got a straight. Hearken not unto the prophets that prophesy unto you. What does he say they do? They make you vain. Jesus warned against the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Remember that? The doctrines that they taught, 
the way they trashed the word and rested the scriptures and made it the way they wanted it to be. He said, do what they tell you to do, but don't believe what they're saying. They're misleading you. To be misled is to take a wrong curve in the road. The word deceive, planeo, planao, it means to be caused to wonder. It's just taking a curve. It looks good. It sounds good. It feels good. There are many with you. We can't all be wrong. And yet you're misled because the way your life now is going to be is not the way he wants it to be. And if they speak not according to this word, they have no light. And if you're walking in darkness, there's a price you pay for that. (laughs) Folks say, that's awful serious. It is serious. What I'm doing right now is serious. What you're doing right now is serious. I can't think of anything in this life more important than us getting this right. It's making application of this word to our life and doing things the way God wants us to do it. But people are misled. Look at verse 21. I believe this is true today in in the ministry. I really believe this. He said, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. I believe that. In fact, I looked up many other scriptures in which God said, there's a bunch in which God said, I did not send these prophets or this preacher or this whatever. And I do believe that you can learn how to preach. You can learn how to be an administrator and Excuse the language. You, you can administrate a church. Administrate. You can learn how to organize it. Get it together. Run this one, get that, and get this going, get that going. Make it very democratic in its process, the voting process, Robert's Rules of Orders. We can have all those things here to make it decent and in order. Nobody gets hurt. Everybody's happy. And the spirit behind it is happiness and comfort. Make people happy. Make people comfortable. Because that's all they want out of religion. And yet the result of it is you lose interest. You begin to wane. You leave off. And when somebody else says something about the great demands of God, you say, well, that's what you believe. But where I go, we, our man's smarter than your man. We, we don't believe that. Well, you know, the world's full of deception and deceit. And when the Bible says and that they... Left off from following the Lord, it means that somebody, in this case, somebody talked them out of it. Let me ask you a question. What will you get today if somebody is not sent? If you're receiving from somebody that was not called, was not sent, what are you going to get? What will you get? Turn real quickly to Jeremiah 14, 12. When they fast... I will not hear their cry. All because of verse 10. People love to wander. They like to have it their own way. And as a result, verse 12, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by pestilence and by the sword. Nothing they pray works. Nothing comes to pass. They quit trying. God is not on their side. God is against them. Chapter 27 of Jeremiah. If you look over there, chapter 27 and verse 15. For I have not 
sent them, saith the Lord. Yet they prophesied a lie in my name, that I might drive you out and that you might perish, you and the prophets that prophesy unto you. How lethal is that? All right, look at chapter 29 and verse 31. Send to all of the captivity, saith the Lord concerning Shemaniah, Nehelamite, because Shemani hath prophesied unto you, and I sent him not, and he caused you to trust in a lie. Now, nothing has changed today. Same spirit today, same spirit today. Falsehood breeds falsehood, and falsehood equals judgment. Now, you got a chance to get it right. You do. In fact, all of mankind has an opportunity, but he doesn't want to get it right. He likes it his way. That brings me to my closing point. The sixth point about why people quit, fall away, and leave off from following the Lord and from doing good. They simply get discouraged. Discouragement. It's just prayers aren't getting answered. Fiery trials that come your way. Peter warned us about that. Think it not strange. Things get kind of sour, quiet. Your exuberance kind of wanes. Your zeal seems to have gone somewhere and you're left to just faith and acting joyful and peaceful. Well, you don't want to do that. I'd be a hypocrite. No. But you think you do. And things you were hoping would happen, a prayer that you wanted, really wanted to get answered, it did not get answered. The people that were around you, it just, I don't know. Can't always tell why things don't work right. We have to deal with it. Why did? Why is this happening? Why didn't that work? How come? I don't know. God knows. I don't always know. But people can reach a place in their life where they say, look, I appreciate all your all's time and energy and come, thank you for coming over here and, and talking to me and all that. But look, I tried it. It just didn't work. And I've decided that Instead of me trying to act like everything's okay, I think I'm just going to back off for a little while. When I say that, back off for a little while and regroup, that often means they're not coming back. But we're going to back off here and regroup and see if we can get something else going. And so they lose heart and they faint. They discourage. You know what caused God to judge his people in the Old Testament? People. Numbers. Remember the book of Numbers? They led them out of Egypt. Into the desert. And what did they start doing? They started complaining. What is this old food we got? We don't like that stuff that comes from heaven. And we don't have anything to drink. And this old desert out here. Remember that? And then that kind of people selected a leader of their tribes. And they went into Canaan's fair and happy land to check out a land that God said flows with milk and honey. I'm going to give it to you. And those 12 men went in there, one from each tribe. When they came out, they said, you know, it's good land. It is all of that. It's lush green valley. We never saw things grow like they grow over there. Man, it is one sensational agricultural piece of land. But there's no way we can make it. Everybody says, why? If it's so good, what do you mean? God told us to go. Well, yeah, I know God told us to go, but you know the rest of the story. There are so many fierce, violent, warring people in that land. We saw giants. Oh, they were 
yay tall. They were taller than Brian, two Brian's. They were great big people. And they were big and fierce. We were trembling while we were hiding, watching them so we could sneak away. And the land is full of that. You think you can take your kids in there? We just left Egypt a little while ago. Here's my little children. I didn't grow up learning how to fight. I grew up making bricks and pyramids. And you think we're going to go in there? I mean, we have a little army. But you think we can go in there and, and fight those people? Forget it. God left us out here to die. And the Bible said the people discouraged the people. That's why they quit trying. And God said, all right, here's the deal. Everyone among you, all the men that are 20 years old and up will never see that land. As I was reading the other day, there were 660,000 men. That's a lot of men. Came out of Egypt. Didn't talk about how many women and children, but 660,000 men. And everyone that was 20 years old and over, 20 years and up, none of them made it. They all died because they murmured. And they discouraged the people. Now, what is that saying to us? Because the Bible said the things that were written then were written for our learning. What are we supposed to learn from all of that? That we affect each other. My words, if they're seasoned with grace or seasoned with salt, my words are to have a good influence on you that we can make it. You can do it. I'm for you and not against you. God will help you. We're supposed to talk like that. Instead of talking about our problems and what we can't do, and I don't know why God doesn't do it, that's not our conversation. Those are the early warning stages of discouragement. They have not developed any kind of pill for discouragement yet. There's no laboratory technique to deal. You can't cut discouragement out. It's just a part of who you are. And you can get discouraged. And when you get discouraged, your chances are you'll get disgusted. When you're discouraged and somebody around you is full of zeal, it just, blah. And then you get critical. And then you complain. And then you cry. And then you don't want to go back to church. And they try to talk to you, it's like talking to the, a piece of wood. That's what happens, folks, when we get discouraged because we leave off. You back away. You start listening to your old friends, you know, a false bunch of people that you hang around, a worldly crowd that you, you listen to are going to get you to the place where you, you get discouraged. Then you begin to doubt. Well, it ain't going to work. I know God said, have you ever seen a miracle? How do you know you'll ever do a miracle? Whose teeth has he ever fixed? What blind eye have you ever seen? You know, who have you ever seen raised from the dead? I know I've heard all the stories. But where, come on, who's that? where did it ever happen? When did it ever happen? When people talk like that, it makes you think about it. And the next thing you know, you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know. Why would they ever do that for me? I'm nobody. Like we are somebody. And the devil, a master deceiver, begins to corrupt your thinking. You begin to see yourself in his light, and you can't, and you're not. You never will be. It's not possible. 
you might as well draw back. I mean, uh, look at somebody else you knew that did that and died. I mean, if you want that to happen to you, then you better, you better watch what you're doing. And you start talking like that to other people. And that's not what edifies. Now, let me tell you something, folks, in closing. Nobody in this room has to quit. Nobody in this room has to give up. Nobody in this room has to live in despair. You've been called out of that, out of darkness. You've been brought into his marvelous light. And the devil is angry and he's mad and he's marshaled all his forces against you to try to deceive you, corrupt you, and get you to quit now. Let me tell you something. Somebody that is greater than the devil who made him. Somebody who is the author of all power and might. All-knowing. Everywhere at once. God is with you. And he will command. And you shall make it. Just don't give up. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, deliver us from evil, from everything that brings despair and grief and sorrow and anguish and frustration, instability and fear and stress. God, deliver us. Help us to lay hold of your word. And take it as a word from heaven, a word that you have spoken to your people by which you will deliver us. Do that. Bless this crowd before whom I stand, those who watch, those who listen. Make us keenly aware of the fact that we're called to triumph in this life and to be overcomers. Make us to be strong in the faith. Bless us in that way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. You're a bunch of overcomers. You just don't know it yet. The devil dreads you getting up in the morning. You just don't know that yet. But when you get that in your noggin and you start slogging through life, He's going to run from you. Amen? Amen. Amen.